Hello everyone, welcome back to Why Did Peter Sink? This one's called A Lead Role in a Cage. Quoting a little Pink Floyd there. This is part nine of Me Speak Babble, The Gate of God. All right, let's get started. A Lead Role in a Cage. Through insights from the saints, we can come to understand the nature of angels and demons. Yes, that's where we're going, angels and demons. We cannot learn anything from Dan Brown, the famous author, who clearly channels demons when he writes the endings to books like Angels and Demons. But from writers like St. John of Damascus, we can understand just enough about spiritual beings to realize our need for armor. First, what did St. John of Damascus have to say about angels? The angel's nature then is rational and intelligent and endowed with free will changeable in will or fickle for all that is created is changeable and only that which is uncreated is unchangeable meaning god also all that is rational is endowed with free will as it is then rational and intelligent it is endowed with free will and as it is created it is changeable having power either to abide or progress in goodness or to turn towards evil more on angels. They are not hemmed in by walls and doors and bars and seals, for they are quite unlimited. Unlimited, I repeat, for it is not as they really are that they reveal themselves to the worthy men to whom God wishes them to appear, but in a changed form which the beholders are capable of seeing. In other words, they can pass through walls and they can shapeshift, which we already probably knew about angels. They have no bodily form by nature, nor are they tended in three dimensions. But to whatever post they may be assigned, there they are present after the manner of a mind and energize, and cannot be present and energized in various places at the same time. So angels can only be in one place at one time. Lastly, they are mighty and prompt to fulfill the will of the deity. That means they follow God's orders. And their nature is endowed with such celerity that... Wherever the divine glance bids them, there they are straightway found. Here's the important part. They are the guardians of the divisions of the earth. They are set over nations and regions, allotted to them by their creator. They govern all our affairs and bring us comfort. And the reason surely is because they are set over us by the divine will and command and are ever in the vicinity of God. That is from a book called De Fide Orthodoxa from St. John of Damascus. Okay, so on first pass, this sounds like terrific news as we are walking through this path toward the gate of God, um, talking about the Tower of Babel. Um, These angels guide us and our nations and govern our affairs and bring us comfort. They guard us and saying the angel of God prayer is a good reminder of what they're actively doing for us at all times. Um, When this prayer is said, you should take heart and consider what it means. So if you're not familiar with the angel of God prayer, this is one well known to Catholics and it rhymes. So it's really easy and it's only four lines. It's angel of God, my guardian dear, to whom God's love commits me here. Ever this day be at my side to light and guard, to rule and guide. Amen. So we must pray for their intercession, their guidance. We pray for angels to intercede on our behalf. We ask the angels and the saints to pray for us, just as we ask Mary to intercede and pray for us. Um, 
it's always important to point that out for people who think Catholics pray to Mary. We pray for Mary to intercede, which I repeat on this a lot because it's probably one of the most confusing things. Um, but we are in a spiritual battle. So enlisting help must be done daily. Uh, there's no such thing as a one-person army, which always made the U.S. Army's ad campaign of an army of one very odd to me because it targeted the self over the team. I think that was probably the worst U.S. Army ad campaign ever. Um, this is also why spiritual but not religious, that is a common thing people say, I'm spiritual but not religious, that makes you a one-man band as opposed to a member of a massive force of people and angels working together. As Pink Floyd asked, did you exchange a walk-on part in the war for a lead role in a cage? You probably heard that song. Um, the cage is yourself. And that is what you trade when you go give up the community of faith for the solitude of, I'm spiritual but not religious. A bird in a flock makes sense. A bird in a cage does not. Unfortunately, many have been driven from the church thinking that it feels like a cage, when it should feel like a flock. This is evident uh, that we have failed to teach the faith well, especially key things like the joy, the mystery, and the aim of holiness and humility before God. This has chased the baptized out so that they look for holiness in other places like concerts and fitness centers, and they will never find what they're looking for in those places because they cannot offer it. Being a standalone believer with a, quote, lead role in the cage, it makes for easy sniping for the devil and the demons. As any addict of any kind knows, the devil wants you alone. He wants you isolated so that you pick up again. Whether it is a drug, a drink, a porn site, sports gambling, your phone, whatever unhealthy attachment haunts you, you can never forget that the devil is the divider, the accuser, and solitude is what he requires to re-employ you for his work. Okay, so what does St. John of Damascus have to tell us about demons? Let's see if he can help us articulate what they are and how they came about. Fortunately, he can. Um, in the same book, he has a section on demons. So here's what he says. He who from among these angelic powers was set over the earthly realm and into whose hands God committed the guardianship of the earth was not made wicked in nature, but was good and made for good ends and received from his creator no trace whatever of evil in himself. But he did not sustain the brightness and the honor which the Creator had bestowed on him, and his free choice was changed from what was in harmony to what was at variance with his nature. And he became roused against God who created him, and determined to rise in rebellion against him. And he was the first to depart from good and become evil. Along with him an innumerable host of angels subject to him were torn away and followed him and shared in his fall. Wherefore, being of the same nature as the angels, they became wicked, turning away at their own free choice from good to evil. So, when God created angels, some of them turned evil. That's what he's saying. Um, there was one leader, and there's an innumerable host of angels that followed him and shared in his fall. St. John of Damascus has more to say about this, and this probably should scare you and encourage you at the same time. <laughs> 
God lets the demons prevail when he sees it working for our salvation. He said about the demons, they have no power or strength against anyone except what God in his dispensation has conceded to them. But when God has made the concession, they do prevail and are changed and transformed into any form whatever in which they wish to appear. So this makes for a really profound claim. Because it reintroduces the old line, the devil made me do it. And it seems to suggest that we do not have free will after all. There's a hint of it there. And this is the timeless question about free will. If God wills all things, then whatever I do is willed by God and I have no agency, no free will. Likewise, if God lets the demons prevail over us, then we cannot be culpable for our actions, right? And this plays right into the hands of Lady Gaga, born this way argument, and also the classic plea of the devil made me do it. But how about an option that treats us like grown-ups instead of some damsel in distress? Is there an option that makes for a hopeful sinner instead of a helpless sinner? Yes. God gives us trials. God gives us trials that lead us to the truth. We are tested. As fallen beings, we are compromised, but not broken. We may be born with the urge to sin, but we have free will. I would think, I would think today's gamer culture would love this option to level up. The born this way argument and the devil made me do it, there's no challenge. So for all the motivational speeches, from TED Talks to Peloton commercials and Nike ads, the idea of born this way seems a bit pathetic when it comes to how we make decisions. We are told to achieve our goals, to strive, to work toward progress in just about everything except for holiness. Receiving a trophy or showing off fleeting six-pack abs really pales in comparison to the pursuit of partaking in the divine nature and seeking eternal life. And once you awaken to the fact that what you want in this world is rather pitiful, the joy of pursuing a life that imitates Christ becomes the only career that even makes sense. Trials we face become different when seen in the light of Christ. Once you realize this path path forward is guided by the Holy Spirit, all tests and trials suddenly become fortifiers of your faith. Here's a quote from the Catechism, paragraph 2847. The Holy Spirit makes us discern between trials, which are necessary for the growth of the inner man, and temptation, which leads to sin and death. We must also discern between being tempted and consenting to temptation. Finally, Discernment unmasks the lie of temptation, whose object appears to be good, a delight to the eyes, and desirable, when in reality its fruit is death. Now this second part of this is about coercion. We are not coerced by God. We have choice. So here's, here's the second part of this. God does not want to impose the good, but wants free beings. There is a certain usefulness to temptation. No one but God knows what our soul has received from him, not even we ourselves. But temptation reveals it in order to teach us to know ourselves. And in this way, we discover our evil inclinations and are obliged to give thanks for the goods that temptation has revealed to us. 
So not only do we have choices to make, but so did the angels, and some of them chose poorly, to quote the last crusade of Indiana Jones. Um, yet we can fight. We have a role to play. We are like the smallest character in the saga of Middle-earth, the one lonely soldier in World War II. We are cast in a great play, and we can stand in the light of Christ or hide with our fig leaves in darkness. This is powerful knowledge to hold. And we are culpable. We are responsible. One of our mistaken thoughts is to assume that we alone are the center of the universe and that God's will is only for us. There are billions of people here on earth. God's plan is for all people and all nations. Tim Keller uses a great metaphor in his book, Rediscovering Jonah, about how a general commands his army in battle. He doesn't go to each soldier and have a sit down about what the battle plan is, and he doesn't encourage each one with a therapy session. The general sets the plan and says, charge, and those on his side, charge, they go. While those against him desert the regiment or join the enemy uh, or disappear somehow. God's plan exceeds our understanding. His ways exceed our understanding. We know the rules of being in his army, and to follow him we need to turn. Recall that to repent just means to turn, and we turn our eyes back to Christ. He is the general. There is no such thing as an army of one. An army of one is an individual, not an army. So when we turn our eyes away, we slip up. When we fail to surrender, we try to win the war alone. And this is what the demons count on, and their whispers to us cause us to slowly turn away from God, often even telling us that we are looking at God when they are just holding up a mirror to our face. The devil can quote scripture and co coax us into bad ideas, bad patterns of living, and he can do it repeatedly if we don't do daily battle in prayer and with others in the faith. Demons suggest that we worry. They make us afraid and they tell us to wall ourselves in. A quarter like they would, they would like to put in the arcade of our minds is this one. You are not good enough. You are not lovable. They like to remind us that we are naked and exposed and vulnerable so that we need to gather fig leaves from the bushes of wealth, power, pleasure, or honor. Do you know how they speak to us? Do you know the language the demons speak to you? They speak babble to us telling us that we must fight, flee, or freeze. And we know that common language all too well. It's what comes natural. So I have one more thing in this episode from St. John of Damascus about demons. God reveals the future to the angels and commands them to prophesy. Or, and, to, and so what they say comes to pass. But the demons also make predictions, sometimes because... They see what is happening at a distance, and sometimes merely making guesses. Hence, much what they say is false, and they should not be believed, even although they do often, in the way we have said, tell what is true. Besides, the demons know the scriptures. All wickedness, then, and all impure passions are the work of their mind. But while the liberty to attack man has been granted to them, they have not the strength to overmaster anyone, for we have it in our power to receive or not to receive the attack. Wherefore, there has been prepared for the devil and his demons and those who follow him fire unquenchable and everlasting punishment. Note further, 
that what in the case of man is death is a fall in the case of angels. For after the fall, there is no possibility of repentance for them, just as after death, there is for men no repentance. So I'm not sure if this is a terror or a comfort to know, but knowing that demons have been granted the liberty to attack us means that our trials have meaning. The seemingly trite comment from your aunt or crazy Christian friend that everything happens for a reason, that quote becomes less crazy the longer you live. And as experiences stack up and hindsight comes into view, the trials make sense. But only if you repent, that is, turn toward God. Trials make no sense when we are turned away. By surrendering to God, we become citizens in a new nation. Just like immigrants have to take a test to become naturalized in America, we merely need to turn over our hearts and minds to become members of God's nation. By giving up all control to God, he takes us under his watch with St. Michael, the archangel, as our bodyguard, and a guardian angel as well, who follows us wherever we go. This becomes a far better defense than, say, the U.S. Army. You have protection and overwatch at all times. I can think of no good reason why the prayer of St. Michael should not be said daily, like a pledge of allegiance to God Most High, where we ask for help from the warriors, the elect, the angels. Here's the prayer of St. Michael, if you don't know it, St. Michael the Archangel. St. Michael the Archangel, defend us in battle. Be our protection against the wickedness and snares of the devil. May God rebuke him, we humbly pray. And do thou, O Prince of the Heavenly Host, by the power of God, cast into hell Satan and all the evil spirits who prowl about the world, seeking the ruin of souls. Amen. People today are uncomfortable with this kind of language because it is taboo to talk about spirits or devils or angels. This is exactly what the devil wants. And in the movie, The Usual Suspect, there's a quote that says it all. Uh, the greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he didn't exist. That's where we are at, where polite society shies away from any kind of talk about Jesus. Why? Because polite society has rejected him and winks at every story where he casts out a demon in the Gospels. They have turned to other answers like psychology and medicine as the only answer for the mental illnesses healed in Jesus's ministry. They've taken the divinity out of him. The word Jesus is now a litmus test to find out where someone is at, of which side they are on. Now this is a door that must be open or closed. God does not allow the door to be halfway open. If the door to sin is cracked open at all, the door is fully open. Given our endless battle against evil thoughts and spirits, we can only shut the gate to hell with the grace of God. Grace stops sin in its tracks. Now, the door to hell is heavy, and only with God's strength can it be closed. There's a current country song where a guy says, uh, I'm only one drink away from the devil. And if you've ever dealt with addiction or things like that, you know exactly what that means. But with God's strength, he won't take the first drink. The reason the door to hell is usually portrayed as a gaping mouth in classic art is because sin will eat you. It will swallow you like death, like a dragon or a monster. St. George, who killed the dragon, he can only slay the dragon and not get eaten because he fights with God at his side. 
So how does he do that? If you know the story of George, St. George, uh, before, he, before he kills the dragon with one thrust of his sword, he makes the sign of the cross and asks for God's help. That's how it's done. It's just that ours is not quite as dramatic as St. George's story. It is, for us personally. It doesn't make as good of a retelling, though. When Jesus said he was a sword, he wasn't kidding. His name truly splits groups in half with those who believe on one side and those who become uncomfortable hearing the word Jesus on the other. After Babel, God allowed spirits to rule the nations, delegating control to them. And this is something we gloss over today because we don't really believe in spirits. And for most cherry-picking Bible readers, because we don't even really believe in God, if we're honest, that's why we don't believe in spirits. Remember, we don't just speak English. I also speak Babel. I want competition and pleasure all the time. Uh, ain't nobody got time for, for nonsense about spirits, angels, and demons. In fact, if someone were, were to admit in a business meeting that they believe in angels, they would be considered an idiot, especially where I work. Um, that is not something you would bring up. Fortunately, this is one of those promises from Jesus that being mocked for faith in him and all that comes with him is a sure sign of being on the right track. So go ahead and say it at work. See how, it, see how it reacts. You will be mocked, but Jesus tells us that's a good thing. This denial of spirits is why we miss so much of what is happening in the Bible. Our modernist ears and eyes are so disenchanted that we give more credence to Harry Potter magic spells than to the religious truth of the Bible. Because whenever a spirit enters the story, our reason drives our belief out. And this is a shame because there is far more going on in the epic story of the Bible than what's happening at Hogwarts. But you have to believe in God first and believe in Jesus as the second person of the Trinity to really understand what is happening in the Bible. It's much easier to accept the fantasy Harry Potter because we know he's an invention sprung from a writer's head. Choosing to believe in Christ as the living Son of God means changing every single aspect of your life. So to play it safe, we'll put words like Jesus, God, spirits, souls, etc. We'll put them all on a shelf because we don't want to deal with them. So when you read Genesis, it's important to understand these points about the nations. And I'm quoting the nations as, um, remember we talked about the table of nations, the use of the word the nations throughout the Bible. Um, as those anything except for the Israelite nation. Number one, the Tower of Babel is the last thing that happens before we meet Abraham. Number two, the formation of the people of Israel, of the nation of Israel, begins with Abraham. Number three, the nation of Israel is in a world that is fully fallen and lives among nations that are ruled by demonic powers. Number four, the nations dislike Israel because they will not bend the knee to false gods. And I'll have a little asterisk by that. It says some of the Israelites won't bend the knee, but plenty do bend the knee to false gods and repeatedly and most famously at the golden calf incident. But there's many, many other instances of that in, say, the book of Judges and beyond. Number five, the remainder of the Old Testament is God guiding and leading the chosen people from Abraham to Mary. Number six, 
all people will be blessed through Abraham's descendant, which means Jesus. So all people equals all nations, and that equals both Gentiles and Jews. So Jews and non-Jews, Jews and foreigners, however you want to say it, all people will be blessed through someone in Abraham's bloodline, and Jesus is in that line. Now, a lot of death and genocide happens in this journey as the sole people of God, of the God Most High, they must fight, scrap, and survive among the 70 nations, which are ruled by demons, or another way of saying is that the nations worship false gods. For those who dislike Israel's warring, those readers forget how many times the nation of Israel is on the receiving end of brutal warfare uh, or slavery, um, exile, etc. Um, they experience enslavement and genocide on the wrong end of the gun, so to speak. Now, as for the hard sayings in the book of Joshua and Judges regarding total war and the genocidal commands of God, I would refer you to look into a book by Michael Heiser called Unseen Realm. This was written in 2015, and it's very interesting, and it will open up many, many things in the Old Testament to you. Um, and it's an important one to read, I think, especially for today in our disenchanted world. Uh, the commands to the Israelite army in the conquest of the Promised Land is unique and strange. It is strange. Joshua and company cannot simply waltz into the Promised Land because there's something already there, something much darker than what we can easily discern from the text. Nations that worship fallen angels, also known as demons, are the only targets of God's heavy hammer of genocidal war when he says that. The doctrine of just war applies only to these specific clans in Palestine. Um, they are clearly doing something in these specific tribes, these battles with certain tribes that are from something in Genesis that happens and how God deals with these enemies in Joshua and Judges must be compared with how he deals with other nations in other places. Even how they fight the Philistines is different from, say, the Amalekites. Um, reasons for the brutal warfare in these books are alluded to regarding what these nations are doing, what they're carrying out. So an ethnic, an ethnic cleansing is the literal reading here as the chosen nation of the God Most High works vigorously toward the fulfillment of the covenant to take the land for his chosen people. That's what people don't like today is reading that. Um, but I would say read the book Unseen Realm. It may change how you read this. This occupa occupation of the land is a prerequisite to the messianic age that we are living in today. So we would not be where we are if God hadn't been guiding those people in that way. It was a different time. Um, yeah. If you cannot stomach the promised land struggle, I would suggest combing through something called the six approaches to the conquest of the promised land on the website Reason and Theology. Uh, much ink has been spilled on this topic, but I feel like Michael Heiser and others like Father Stephen DeYoung are catching on to something deep and important from texts unearthed with the Dead Sea Scrolls that we are only just now beginning to understand. And it requires reading the book of Enoch alongside the Old Testament. Enoch is not in the Bible, but the Bible refers to it quite a few times. Um, in Genesis, 
in Jude, in one of the epistles of Peter, uh, even in Numbers, I believe. So I, I, I can't dive fully into this here because it would require another set of articles and episodes of its own to fully explore. But one thing is certain. It's a lonely world to be staying true to the one true God. The same is a fact today as anti-Jewish and anti-Christian sentiments are rising in America. But like any life lived with conviction, Israel's formation as a nation requires great sacrifice, struggle, and often battle for both establishment and survival. You cannot get to marry without the conquest of Canaan. Later, when Israel squares off against the mega armies of Babylon or Persia or Greece or Rome, they fail. They are defeated. They're humiliated. So you have to factor that in is that the, when they win the battles against the tribes that are in Canaan, they are later going to receive a uh, brutal drubbing from some of the empires that follow. Being the only nation that worships Yahweh makes for difficult passages wherever they go. But amid this whole story, there is an all-important plot playing within the larger narrative. This enormous story is zeroing in the entire time on a path to the home of a teenage girl where this happens. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a town of Galilee called Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man named Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And coming to her, he said, Hail, favored one, the Lord is with you. That's from Luke chapter 1. Gabriel comes to Mary in the fallen world where the nations are still ruled by demons. All of the nation-building narrative, all of the journeying in the desert, all of the wars, the kings, the captivity, all of that is prefaced to the moment with Mary. The chaos, the creation, the fall, the flood, the Tower of Babel, they are all prefaced to Abraham and the formation of the nation. Genesis chapters 1 to 11 are explaining how the fallen world came to be the way it is. From Abraham to Mary, that is the story of how the nation of the chosen people delivered and lasted through the centuries of struggle to protect and guard the lineage that brought forth the mother of God. And that's where the story starts to get really interesting. Okay, that's it for this episode of Why Did Peter Sink? I hope you'll be back for the next one where we'll continue this series. We have several episodes to get through yet. Thanks for listening, everyone.